Um, so today, since most everybody here has been a part of the, the teaching, I'm not going to review too much. I just will simply say this, that as we've gone through Hebrews from chapter 1 to chapter 10, the overarching theme is what? <clears throat> Jesus, is Jesus is supreme. That's right. Jesus is supreme to everything spiritually as it relates to our spiritual life. He's supreme to every religious system, every religious function that the Jewish people had and that anybody has had since then. And and, in this particular case, it's the Jewish sacrificial system in the temple and the tabernacle. And so he was superior to Moses, superior to uh, Joshua, and, and the high priest. He was the highest priest. And we've been looking at that and really... From chapters 1 up and through 10, what we're seeing is that the writer is trying to get people to understand what they possess in Jesus. And, and because they have to know first, then be, you know, people be, and then they do. And, and a lot of times we try to do without being and knowing. And the knowing precedes the being, and the being precedes the doing. And so this writer is writing to these three groups of people. Remember, there's people that are all in. There's people that have left the sacrificial system, but they're not all in. And there's people still trying to decide. And there's three warnings in chapter 2, don't drift. Chapter 3, don't harden your heart. Chapter 5 and 6, don't waver. And, And as we got into chapter 10, we saw the writer really laying out that because we have access we looked at verses 19 20 and 21 last week and 22 because we have access assurance and an advocate he calls us to draw near he says let us draw near to him because we have access how do we have access through jesus blood his death when jesus died and now he intercedes as our great high priest we have access to god 24 7 that's a big deal that's a really big deal. That means that anytime, any place, wherever you are, you can cry out to God. There was this guy named Prem Perdon. Let me read this to you just for a second. Let me find it. Prem Perdon was a guy who was Nepali who came to Christ and began sharing the gospel with people. And Prem Perdon was put in prison for sharing the gospel with people. And when he was in prison, guess what? He started a Bible study in prison. It infuriated the people that jailed him there. And so they said, we're going to move you to another prison. So they moved him to another prison. A worse prison. And guess what? He started a Bible study there. Started a little church there. And so they moved him to another prison. Eight different prisons they moved him to. Eight different churches. They were so infuriated, they sent him to an insane prison where it was just a bunch of mentally ill people. And he realized they weren't mentally ill. They just were possessed. So he cast out the demons and started a church there. I'm not kidding you. This is true. You can go read about him. He's, he's in history books because he's in our lifetime. This is not somebody thousands of years ago. But listen to this. He was in this prison. And, and the, the prison conditions there were like a death sentence. The jailers were afraid of this man who survived their torture chamber. Because they put him in a chamber where they used to throw dead bodies until the relatives would retrieve them. They chained his hands and feet and they would literally throw dead bodies in where he was in a very tight, confined space. (laughs) 
And Prim said that when he was there in that space with dead bodies all around him, he said he could see the pages of his Nepali New Testament that he had read many times. And after three months, there was a new guard who came on duty and he heard Prim praying. Who are you talking to? The guard asked. And he said, Jesus. Well, I'm on guard. How did he get in here? (laughs) Well, he's here. The guard opened the door, shined his flash around. I don't see a Jesus, he said. He said, you won't find him that way. Let me tell you how you can find him. The guard squatted on the floor and Prim led him to the Lord that day. Shortly after that, the guard used his influence to get Prim out of this deadly body chamber. He was, he was real. He had 24-7 access. Dead bodies all around him. And as you think about that, he was faithful. So I have a few questions for you as we get started today. When things get tough for you because of your love, first of all, Have things ever gotten tough for you because of your love for Jesus? If not, are we really taking a stand for Him? If they have, do we hold fast? Or do we we waver? Do we compromise? Do we sway to the culture? We have not done a very good job of validating Jesus in our culture. He says that we have access assurance and advocacy. We have a great high priest. So we need to think about this. I want you to think of the names of people that have encouraged you in your faith. People that have helped you. And I want you to just think for a second. The names should pop into each of our head for who helped you be where you are today. Why are you here in a Bible study today? Who helped you? Think about those names. What did they help you with? Did they help you understand the Bible? Did they exhort you and tell you that you need to get serious about your Christian faith? Did they encourage you maybe at a time where you were struggling and you thought God couldn't use somebody like you? For me, I think about people that did help me understand God's Word. They did help me hold me accountable to living out His Word. And they also held me accountable for telling others for going to do missions, for being involved with God's kingdom work. So here's a tougher question, I think. How are you doing in taking what those people built into you, building into other people? That's really where the rubber meets the road. Paul said to Timothy, the things that you've heard from me, Timothy, you teach faithful people who will then teach others. See, it's supposed to be perpetual. But we stop. We become paralyzed a lot of times. Because Jesus is our priest and king, God says we have access, we have assurance, and we have an advocate. And because of that, he calls us, first of all, to draw near. And we looked at that last week. That's our response to him. That's intimacy with him. But second, he says in verse um, 23 today, hold fast to the confession of our faith. And then in verse 24 and 25, he says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Consider how to stimulate or to stir up or to provoke one another. So that's our text today. We're looking at those two concepts, holding fast and considering how to stir up. So let's read the text and then we're going to go through and kind of talk about 
what that means, what it means to hold fast. And we're going to look at um, two attacks that cause us to compromise. Secularism or philosophy and persecution. And it comes in different forms. And then we're going to look at five characteristics of an encourager provoker. So looking at verse 19 in chapter 10, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us, through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to loving good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. May God bless His Word. Let us draw near. We talked about last week what that means. That means coming to Him with a true heart, an authentic heart. No concealment of our sin. We come, bring it all. We said full assurance. Understanding and dependence. Being understanding of what He wants and His love for us and depending upon Him for everything. And then this week in chapter, uh, or in chapter 10, verse 23, when He says, hold fast the confession of our hope, what does He mean? What does He mean by confession of hope? Well, that's our testimony. Where's our hope? It's in Jesus, right? Our confession of that is that it, it, to confess it means that we believe it. We speak it. We live it. And to hold fast means not to let go. This is not rocket science. I mean, this is not deep stuff. This is keep it simple marine stuff right here. He says, hold fast. The confession of hope. That's our testimony. And then he throws in this, without wavering, compromising, bending. There's two attacks that I really want to look at. There's probably more, but two specific in our culture that cause us to waver. One, the secularism philosophy attack. In the 1800s, there was an onslaught of critical thinking and things that were trying to undermine the biblical authority that God has called us to live by. The greatest of which was evolution, the theory of evolution. And if you go back and you read Darwin and you read some of his disciples, Huxley, what you end up finding out is the reason they came up with all this is because they wanted to have a lifestyle of sexual immorality. And that permitted them to do it. Because if you say there's no God, just natural selection and natural happenstance, then there's no consequences for immoral choices, right? And that's what they said. There's no morality, just biology. Just a man wanting to be with a woman. And we should be able to be with any woman we want to be with. Why do we have to be in the confines of a marriage? Why do we have to be in the confines of a God-ordained marriage? No home, just a sociological unit. We're just packs. No God-given roles of men and women. We're all equal in function. 
No raising children according to biblical standards. Everybody's for himself. We live and let live. Now see, what's really funny is, it's like sometimes you see these arguments when you got people that are pro-life that get upset because I don't want to wear a mask. Not pro-life, I'm sorry, pro-choice. I'm sorry, let me restate that. You got people that are pro-choice that get upset because I don't want to wear a mask. Don't I have a choice? Isn't it my body? Well, wait a minute. Your, your decision impacts others. Well, so does yours. Right. It doesn't count if you're a Democrat. Well, well, it, well it, here's the thing. It, it's, it's not just a Republican-Democrat issue. It is an ideological issue where people, what they do is it, when they're their own God, they make rules, and the rules are what they want. But see, I want you to imagine for a second in the NFL, A player goes, Coach, I don't like your game plan, so I'm going to run my game plan. Name better be Tom Brady. Well, 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 even Tom Brady. That didn't work out too well with Belichick either. Huh? The, The thing I'm saying is, if the player wants to run a game plan that's different from the coach and the rest of the team, it ain't going to work out too well. It never does. And what we do as Christians is a lot of times is we say, God, I don't like your game plan. I'm going to do my game plan. In fact, we don't even consult the game plan. We don't even want to know what the game plan is. We just want to get out on the field and wear the uniform. And so what he's saying is that in this, this, this secularism philosophy comes in, and what it does is it causes us not to hold fast. We waver. Why? Because our culture influences us. So much so that now you've got lots and lots of churches who believe that Genesis 1 through 11 isn't true at all. It's just figment of it's just a fable used to illustrate a point. And and in fact, 40% of pastors don't even believe in it. They don't even believe in the creation literally. Is that an evangelical church? Yes. Barna did a study on it. It's crazy. And so it undermines God's authority. Listen to what Paul says. This is not new, by the way. Paul dealt with this in Colossians 2. Listen to what he says and see if it doesn't have application. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink with regards to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head. Talking about Jesus there. You know what our problem is, really? We're not devoted to Jesus. It's devotion is what he's talking about. When you're devoted to something, you hold fast. You don't let go. I don't know how people think they're going to die for Jesus when they don't live for Him. Doug, can I ask you a question? Yeah. I was on the call this morning and I was kind of taking some notes and I... 
think maybe something I discovered is that it says when I put it on here, when there's full assurance in that which our faith depends on, our lives will reflect that. Yet we see churches, and I'm talking about what we consider to be the church, the believers, not living different than the world. So to me, the challenge is, are they truly converted? That's the, well, that's the whole point. You have, to, you have to know in order to be. Right. And you have to be before you can go do. Because th- that's, that's the thing. We don't, and the knowing is not knowing about. What's the difference between a wire and an electrician as it regards to electricity? The wire carries the electricity. The electrician knows about electricity. I think for a lot of people, we are electricians in the church. We know about Christ, but we don't carry Him anywhere. God wants us to be wires, instruments that carry Him to people, carry His goodness to people. Not to know about Him. Electricians know all about electricity, but they don't do anything to conduct electricity. Does that make sense? And that's the difference, I think. And what you're talking about is a church full of electricians. Well, I think he uses that word confidence. If you put a bicycle up here and said, do you have confidence in that bicycle? It's going to be demonstrated in the fact that I got on it and rode it. Yeah, I don't think we can live it out if we don't really believe it. If we really believe it. If I, if I busted in the door and I said, listen, guys, I just found out Chuck has COVID-19. And he touched every plate. <laughs> if you believe me, if you really believe me, and I said, but... There's some hydrochloroquine <laughs> over at the infirmary or at the hospital, and they're going to give it to us. I called over there, and you can go. If you believed me that he had it, you would go. They won't give it to you. <laughs> I'm trying to get yeah. <laughs> but do you understand the point? Yeah. The point is, when we believe something, it impacts us. And that's the difference between knowing about and truly knowing. Paul says in Ephesians 4 that the mark of a spiritually immature person, he calls them an infant, is this. They're tossed about and carried about by false teaching. By every wind of teaching, he says. And by the clever cunning of men. Now, I I think that's what we see a lot in the church today. They're carried. You ever see these people? Did you hear what he said? I like it. And then somebody else comes along. They're chameleon. They turn right into this theology over here. It's whatever the reigning thought is at that moment. That's that's what drives them. Not this. It's what's popular, and that's what he's talking about. Well, we're in a war, and this is why we need to understand this is an attack. And we got to be prepared because the, the gospel is offensive. It's not defensive. We're not trying to push Satan off. We're taking ground. Every time you obey God in your life, in your world, you are establishing ground for His kingdom. You know that? Every time you obey Him. 
And so when the enemy shoots missiles like evolution, psychology, uh, feminism, materialism, whatever it is, immorality, all those thrown at us. Listen, right now, four out of every ten pastors and Christian leaders struggle with pornography. How in the world can that be? No, I'm not. That's, that's sad. They don't recognize that that's from the enemy. It's an attack. And if he can attack and take down a pastor, he can affect a whole flock. You take down a... That's why, you know what? And this is what he does. The enemy's smart. In wartime, you know what you do? You take out the leaders because then chaos breaks out. So that's why the snipers would snipe the officers. They would go and shoot. You didn't want to be an officer in Vietnam because they were sitting there and they, the snipers were looking for the officers to take them down. Because if you take out an officer, then there's fighting. Who's going to take over? There's confusion. Yeah. And so that's what the enemy does. He tries to take us down. Tommy Nelson said this, and I really like this because it's true about our culture. Biblical teaching is supposed to be the bricks of the Bible mixed with the mortar of stories or narratives, illustrations from everyday life. Most preaching in our culture today is we've made it bricks of stories mixed with the Bible as mortar. We flipped it. We, 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 the, the mortar, you, have you ever seen mortar? You know how weak mortar is? Where's the strength of a home? It's in the brick. It's not in the mortar. And, and the strength of a message is this. Guys, if I came in here and I did nothing but read that text to you today, God's Word has gone out. What I say about it really is not as material as what you heard the Spirit say in the Word itself. All I'm trying to do is give you some stories explaining what the Word says. But the Word is the brick. And that's why if you notice, if you've been coming to SWAT a long time, it ain't rocket science what I'm teaching. I'm explaining what the words say. Let's see. It says, Hebrews 22, let us draw near. What was my first point last week? Draw near. Where did that come from? That didn't come from me. It came from here. What is my point, the first point today? Hold fast. Where did that come from? All I'm doing is giving you God's Word. And I explain it. Now, one pastor, who's very popular, by the way, said that that's cheating. He said that's lazy preaching. And he calls expository teaching, he says it's weak. It's weak preaching. There was a shepherd in the Middle East who was keeping sheep over there. And he was asked, because you know the way they call sheep, sheep are led how? For you guys who remember? Voice. Voice. They're led by what they hear, right? Only one time will a sheep go to another shepherd's voice. And it's when they're sick. When a sheep is sick, they can be misled by another shepherd. Charles Spurgeon says, Come search you critics. Find a flaw in God's Word. Search from Genesis to Revelation. Find an error. This is a vein of pure gold. Untainted by any earthly substance, it can't be said about any other book. All wisdom is gathered up in you. Why? Because God wrote it. Blessed Bible, you are the truth. God's Word is the truth. Are you wavering on that because our culture wavers on that? 
Are you holding fast the confession of faith that this tells me that Jesus died on a cross for me and because Jesus died, I have access, I have assurance, and I have an advocate 24-7. And I'm drawing near to God and I'm holding fast my confession even in the midst of secular philosophy and humanism. But there's another attack, persecution. Persecution. Polycarp was asked to deny Jesus before he was martyred. He was burned at the stake. And they said, if you deny him, you can walk away. All you got to do is say, I'm an atheist. And we'll say an atheist walked away. You can walk away an atheist and you'll live. And this is what he said. 86 years I've served God and He has never done me an injury. How then can I blaspheme my King and Savior? He died willingly choosing Jesus and death over life and apostasy. See, it's easy for us to sit in a room like this where we don't have to worry about somebody putting us on a stake and lighting a fire underneath us and say, I love Jesus. But what about for those brothers over in the Middle East that it can cost them their life? What about the people over in Nepal and Bhutan that are getting beaten? Persecution for us looks different. But the requirement for us to lay down our life is no less on us than it is them. Because Jesus said, follow me. If you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And by that, he's saying, die to yourself. It's just that when we live in a materialistic culture, we have a hard time dying to ourselves. I mean, when somebody takes it out of your hands, and Amos, they put handcuffs on you and put you in a jail and say, you've got to deny Jesus or you're not getting out of here, then that makes it pretty clear where the line is. But for us, we walk around and we think, I love Jesus, I love Jesus. But there's not really a, a way of manifesting that other than acts of love here. We're not persecuted like they were. We may get persecuted some. In that direction. <laughs> yeah, I think so. But you know what? Here's what's interesting. In the Bible, there's only one time in 20 years of ministry that Paul says in the Scriptures that Satan stopped him. Only once. And other than Pete and Brad, does anybody else know where that is? It's when he's trying to come to see the Ephesians. Nope. He's trying to come to see one of the churches. It is one of the churches. And I can't remember which church it is. Okay. Actually, David Wainer this morning said it was um, it was when he was prevented from going to Macedonia, but that's not it. That was the Holy Spirit that kept him from going there. This is specifically Satan. He, he references Satan. I'm going to tell you where it is. In Acts 17, there was a disturbance that took place. Paul was in Thessalonica. And as he was there... Uh, uh, the crowd got stirred up. The Thessalonians got stirred up. And the Romans were upset. And what happened is, they were going to throw him in jail and beat him. But there was this guy who was a believer named Jason, this young believer with some other young believers, and they intervened. And what they did is they pulled their money and they took it to the leaders and said, we will give you this as a tribute, as a bond, that they won't do anything to make a mess anymore. And you go, well, that seems like a nice thing, doesn't it? That, that they took up the money and they went to help them? Well, the problem was, Paul didn't see it that way. 
In 1 Thessalonians 2.18, this is what he said. He's saying to the Thessalonians, I wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered me. And you know how Satan hindered him? He worked through what Jason did because Paul was not going to violate what he told those leaders. You see, they wanted to be peace lovers instead of peacemakers. There's a difference. Peace lover says, I'll do anything at the cost of peace. The Bible doesn't tell you to do that. Do you know that? What does it say, Chuck, about peace and our responsibility? So long as... That's it. You got it, Amos. So long as it depends on who? On me. And so what he's saying is, you do what's right with God and you're not responsible for what other people do. What they did is, we'll give you this money if you won't put our friend in jail and beat him. Was Paul afraid of getting beaten? Not at this point he wasn't. At this point he wasn't. He was beaten five times, 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. He was not afraid to be beaten. What they did was they circumvented. They went and offered money. And and Paul says, Satan hindered. And so here's the question I have for us. Have we shut our mouths to avoid problems? Yes. Is that the right thing to do? So what do we do when that happens? You know what we do? We confess it. We own it. And we say, God, strengthen me not to do that again. That's what He wants. What He doesn't want is paralysis. He doesn't want us to say, well, I blew it, now I can't ever do it. And that's what the enemy does. But persecution can keep us too. John Monger, guys, 18 months he's beaten. You can walk out those doors if you deny Jesus. He never denied Him. He never did. Prem Pradhan, who I read about earlier, same thing. For years... Many, many prisons. Awful conditions. And we get upset because we can't find a parking spot at our church. Here's the thing. And God may never call you personally to do that, but He wants you to be willing to do that. That's the issue. See, and we can't look at Chuck or or Brad and go, you know what? I want to be like them. I mean, you can go like them. Paul says, imitate me as what? I imitate Christ. But everybody has different experiences. And, and when I think about a John Monger, I don't know if I could do that, but I'm not there. I can tell you one time um, I asked God that question and I ended up getting taken away to a warehouse for about an hour and a half and they told me they were going to kill me in Russia back in the 90s. And they told me I was never going to see my family again. And I was in a situation where I did not feel good. I had a bad pit in my stomach, and I thought it was, I didn't think I was going to see my family again. Because they told me to stop preaching over there, and we didn't. And they told me they were going to make an example out of me. And I was just sitting there praying, okay, God, I don't know what to do. I didn't know whether to disarm the guy, because I thought I could have taken his gun from him. But then I'm in a country where I'm a fugitive at that point, and they don't treat fugitives very well over there either. So I'm just like, what do you want me to do? That's literally what I said to God. God, I don't know what to do. What do you want me to do? And I just sensed a need to share the gospel with those people, and that's what I did. So for an hour, I shared the gospel with them. 
And they didn't trust Christ like that guy in Prem Perdoncel did. That was after the communists left. Yeah, that was in, in the late 90s. But what happened is after about an hour and a half, they let me go. They just said, you're free. And I'm like, and my, my translator was scared to death. He's 21 years old. He thought we were dead. He, he, he said, I thought we were dead. I thought they were going to take our bodies and dump us off in the river. And maybe they did. Maybe God protected us for whatever reason. But I can tell you, in that situation, there was a peace. And I wasn't afraid. I, I, I can honestly say, I, I was sad that I thought I might not see my wife again, but I wasn't afraid. And the only reason I can think that that happened is because He gave me the strength I needed at that moment. See, I don't think you can appropriate what, what He doesn't give you. But I think He'll give you what you need when you need it, if that makes sense. There's, there's that saying that uh, God provides for those He's called. Yeah. He's called you to that. He'll provide for you. So, and I, I'll be really quick with this. I probably mentioned it before. There's a great book that a lot of you have probably read called The Hiding Place by Corey Denboom about she and her sister and they went through concentration camps and how they survived it. She uses the illustration of when she was a little girl and she would go on train trips with her father. She would always be bugging her father. Where's my ticket? Where's my ticket? When am I going to get my ticket? And his, her father would always say, when do I give you the ticket? Yeah. When you're getting on the train. When you need it. Yeah, you don't, so, you don't need right. it before that. And, and she thought of that often in getting through all the stuff with the concentration camp. Every time she thought... How am I going to do this? I can't get through this. She would remember her father saying, I'll give it to you when you need it. That's what God did. But even then, Jimmy, the, the thing is going back to even picking up what he said, Corey Tenboom didn't do it without God, and that, she would acknowledge I mean. that. That's yeah. what I mean. Every time I think I can do something apart from him, it's when he reveals to me I can't. Yeah. So keep this in mind. Persecution and this secular humanism are the two big attacks I think we experience here. And the persecution here may not be physical. It's more mental or relational as it relates to our faith. But still, let's not waver. Let's do what he says. Because we have access, assurance, and an advocate, let's not waver. Let's hold fast to it. But then the, the other thing he says today in verse 24 and 25, he says, let's consider how to stimulate one another and exhort one another. And what he means by that is provoke. Two words in this passage in 24 and 25, provoke and encourage. So we want to be provokers slash encouragers. Have you ever been provoked? You know what it means to be provoked? I mean, really provoked? It means that somebody's like John Mazel when he said, you know, I remember I left the FBI and he said, when are you really going to get serious about your faith? And I'm like, what do you mean? I left the FBI. I'm in ministry. He wasn't talking about what I did. He was talking about my heart. And it provoked me. It really did. It provoked me. Sometimes we're challenged by our brothers, and that's what we're supposed to be doing with each other, to provoke one another. And, and he's saying, stir up. The word consider there, well, let's, let's just go through five characteristics real quick of a provoker and an encourager as we finish up. Five characteristics. I'm going to just breeze through these. these, these the provoker-encourager is the guy that you want to introduce to people at your church. All right. When you, when you bring a visitor to church, some guy you've been trying to witness to, this is the guy you want to introduce him to because you know he's going to provoke them and, and try to encourage them in that walk. First thing is a close fellowship with Jesus. 
close fellowship with Jesus. I think of Andrew, Matthew. Uh, Andrew, you know, he was always bringing people to Jesus. Why? Because he walked with Jesus. He was with him all the time. Matthew, when he called Levi, he hadn't been a believer very long, but he walked with Jesus for just a little bit. And what did he do? He wanted to throw a party and invite all his friends. He wanted his friends to know. Why? Because he was spending time with Jesus. That's the, the electrician wire thing. If you're a wire, you're here. You got to have the electricity before it can flow through you, right? You got to be connected to the source. I think, and you've heard the analogy, people a lot of times want to connect to a battery. And when you're really connected with Jesus, you got the 240 going through you. It's not just getting a... See, I think, Brad, going to something we've talked about a lot is we want to connect to a preacher or a teacher. And that's not the source. That's the wire that we're trying to get what they got, but we have to go to the source. And that's you in the Word reading the Bible, okay? Connecting to Him. Second is being intentional. The word consider there means perceive clearly in verse 24. And it means intentional. The Christian walk just doesn't happen. You're intentional about it. Jimmy, you started a business, right? It didn't just happen, right? You had to think about what you were going to do. You just didn't say, okay, I want to start a business. Here's the money. <laughs> All right, got money. I got product. Wait a minute. How, how come we're not having sales? Because you've got to be intentional. You've got to have salespeople. You've got to have a plan, right? Well, God's got a plan. It's right here. He tells us what to do. But it's intentionality that He's saying a, a thought... You know, a provoker and an encourager's intentional. Second or third is loyal to God, loyal to his people. Being interdependent versus independent. Independency kills in the body of Christ. It absolutely kills. It's awful. And I've got two or three guys, man, I'm just I keep trying to get them plugged in. And they just are stiff arming. And I'm gonna tell you. Isolation kills. It kills. And God wants His people to be interdependent so that we can check up on one another. Just you telling me that, Jimmy, you know what? It makes me want to pray for you. Well, I think when they started arresting people in churches the last couple of months, I've never heard of that in the history of America. I don't think that's ever happened. So I started thinking, how well can I deny them and have Jesus always in my heart. And I thought, worst case, if they tie me to a tree out there, put the brush all around my feet and say, okay, we're going to burn you alive if you don't say you you don't like Jesus. I don't know if I can do it. <laughs> you know, I, Sitting in you this know, chair, you can. Sitting right here, you can. But maybe there you could because maybe there His Spirit would be there. There was a guy, I'm going to tell you this. I know I'm on just two more things. I want to tell this story. Polycarp, the guy I mentioned... Before he died, there was another guy, it was either the guy before him or after him that got burned at the stake. And they had heard that the fires didn't burn the believers, like they didn't experience the pain because God had given this, this supernatural ability. And so the person said to the, the other martyr, he said, he was going first, he said, Will you give me a sign to let me know? And the sign was the raised hands. Because once they start the fire, guess what happens? 
the, the, the bindings burn off, right? The bindings burn off. Well, the guy raised his hands. He raised his hands and he started singing as he was being burned alive. And it, and it encouraged that other guy who was coming after him to be bold. There's another story real quick. I can't think of the guy's name, but he had recanted his faith and then recanted the recant. Yes. And when they burned him, when they burned him, they started the fire. He asked if they could leave one hand out and the hand that he signed the paper is is what he stuck in and let burn first. Because he wanted to show he's all in for Jesus there. But he recanted at one point. See, it's not, it's not the mistakes along the way. It's how you finish, right? And even though he recanted, he recanted again. And so we're going to have moments of weakness. Just like you said earlier, Amos, we're going to have moments of weakness. But it's how, what we do with those. We bring them to Him. So we have close fellowship. We have intentionality. We have a loyalty to God and His people. We model. That's what encouragers and, and provokers do. They model. 2 Timothy 2.2 What you hear, share with other people. Share with your grandkids. Do you know that 93% of Christian grandparents don't even tell their grandkids about Jesus? That's crazy. And lastly, be an encourager. And by that, how, how do we encourage in our uh, culture? One of the most encouraging men I know is a guy named Joe White. When, when I talk with Joe or anybody else talks with Joe, you feel like you're the most important person in the world at that moment because nothing can deviate his focus from your eyes. Nothing. I remember one time I was working with Joe and I went up to him to try to... I, he had to do something, right? And I go up to him and he's talking to somebody. And you know, usually if you just come right up next to somebody, they'll look over at you. He never budged. He was focused on the person he was talking to. And when he finished, then he looked at me and he said, yeah, what do you need? He made people feel important. Ask questions. Listen. We live in a culture that has time for nobody but ourselves. And I struggle with this, and I have to constantly come before the Lord and say, Lord, help me, help me, help me with this. Because I'm busy, and I'm going, and I'm, and I'm just like, it's not I'm trying to be rude, I, but I feel like, and I remember one time, a guy told me, he said, Doug, I feel like the only time you call me is when you need me. And it was just like, ooh, man, that hurts. That's not the way I want to be. So I have to bring that to the Lord and I have to tell Him. But again, it's not perfection He's looking for. It's direction. It's an acknowledgement. So close fellowship, intentional, loyal, modeling, and encourager.